I'm George Walker, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest, Dennis James, has been bringing the sounds of what we still insist on calling silent films to movie theaters for more than 40 years. He's no stranger to the concert hall, the recital hall, and the orchestra pit, but it's his championing of the early films that has led to his appointment as Hollywood's International Ambassador of Silent Films. He's the first and the only appointee. He was on the IU campus as part of the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Lecture Series when we spoke with him. Dennis, you started on the piano. You moved to the organ really pretty quickly. How did that happen? Well, really thinking back... It was piano here at campus, but I my very first silent film performance was as an organist, and it was a spontaneous thing. Um, I, we had a Hammond B3 in our auditorium at high school, in Cherry Hill High School in New Jersey, and I was taking uh, organ lessons at that point when I came in as a freshman, and the um, music department head was an aspiring professional organist. And so he really, really, we bonded, Bill Burley, we bonded. So anyway, they had this Hammond B3, and they immediately made me the organist as a freshman, an appointment in a high school, big deal. So we had this annual show called The Variety Show. And in 1964, I was challenged to come up with something to do to play the organ because I was the school's organist. At that point, I was doing things like playing the um, introduction to the assembly. Each each day, we would have each class gather in the auditorium, and they'd do announcements and things. And so I was very adept at playing Beatles music, very popular at the time. And, and the kids would be snapping along a hard day's night. You know, it was really quite something. And so I had this idea. I'd somehow picked up, probably from... Max Morath's at the turn of the century television show, seminal part of my experience. Um, he used to talk about the performance arts at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, and he would talk about silent film. There was mention of silent film with live organ music, so I thought that'd be a fun thing to do. And I got together with my girlfriend at the time, who was a fellow aficionado of um, 1920s songs, you know, and we got out some of the fake books of the time where they just give you the little melody, and the, and we chose a comedy movie that starred Larry Seaman. We got a 16-millimeter print. School media department had a projector, and I put together a score, basically pop tunes, and that is the very first time I did a silent movie, and it was spontaneous and a hit, 20 minutes, and it, I was the star of the show. It was great. Okay, so that's high school, yeah. and you did that. You came to IU as a pianist or as an organist? No, I came enrolled as a, I was going to be a church organist, and I, I was about suited to be a church organist as George W. Bush was to be a fighter pilot, you know. I kind of arrived, <laughs> and fortunately, I really look back and see how fortunate it was to come to IU because it was such a big school. You know, I could vanish, even the, the music school was the largest in the world at that point. Literally, they attempted to do that and succeeded to get the enrollment the largest. Well, when you're in the largest of anything, my dad taught me this. He was in the Army, and he got out of doing things. He taught me that if you carry a clipboard and have a pencil behind your ear, you can walk anywhere and do anything because it looks like you have a reason. (laughs) So he taught me that. So I I signed up. Um, I remember I was quite thrilled with the notion of taking classes in the history of theater with a marvelous performing professor who spent his summers 
in spaghetti westerns in Italy. He would commute. He was wonderful. He would act out his lectures. That's why this seems so immediate when I tell you these things, because it is bringing the past. So what happened is that um, I vanished. I created my own degree program. I, my, I majored in organ and minored in business Really? Yeah. Uh, Counting and all sorts of things. And then Cognate Field was film studies, which were at that very moment emerging. Uh, The first academic film study program was here at Indiana, right? And I was in the first with Harry Gettle, Dr. Harry Gettle. So I just sort of fell into what turned out to be exactly what I needed. So I came here as an organ student. And um, the performance aspect of here and Bloomington came about, I was right around the corner here. I, st- I was at Wright Quad, which is just around the corner, and it was considered a jock dorm. I did not fit in at Wright Quad. <laughs> I mean, it was, my, they, it was where the football players stayed, you know, and uh, it was close to the field house at that time, you know, and, uh, oh, I didn't fit in. I did not fit in. I, <laughs> I can re- still remember being uh, purged from my first uh, dorm room I got the signal that I was not welcome as a music student within this setting. When I came back from rehearsing, I would rehearse until 10.30 at night when the music school closed, mainly to stay away from the kids at the dorm. And um, I came back one night, and I I, uh, opened the door, and there was nothing of mine in my dorm room. And somebody tipped me off that they'd set my dorm room, including my bed, in the uh, restroom at the end of the hall. (laughs) Is that a signal or what? (laughs) So anyway, uh, somehow, I don't remember who, but I do remember I was told, they show silent movies over at Wittenberg, which is a little room down, down the street here. And Harry was showing on Wednesday nights. Uh, a history of film course, and the demonstration was was the history of film with 16-millimeter prints at Wittenberg. And I walked out. I thought, oh, great, you know, and I was there very quickly. So it must have been right at the very beginning, maybe even the very first show, because I remember the very first film that he put up was The Great Train Robbery, Thomas Edison, 1903, which is considered, you know, the beginning of dramatic film. So there was a piano, you know, and <laughs> I walked up to Harry. Hey! There's a piano. There's supposed to be music with these. He says, well, can you do it? And my standard answer to anybody who asks me that question in anything is, sure, yeah. <laughs> so I sat down and played the piano for the Great Train Robbery. So it was piano that I, but it really didn't matter. It, you know, something with keys. I was a keyboard man, still am. Yeah, and often when I give talks about getting involved in this field, I had no idea they wrote music for these movies, not a clue. And I made up what I needed to do based upon simply my own thought and experience, which literally is how film music began. I mean, they just it was a functional thing. The very first screening, all of us who were in silent film music want to know what happened in 1895 on December, I think it was December 21st, 1895, they showed the Lumiere brothers' film of the people exiting the film factory, which is the first exhibited film, put in a bill, a, what we would call a, a vaudeville bill. It was in a cafe in Paris, and they had, uh, you know, things like uh, a dancer and a singer and a and a pianist, and so this was another element in the evening's bill. And we all wonder, did did they play for it? 
logic tells us yes, because the pianists were challenged to just accompany whatever is being performed. It was a natural thing to put music to something in a cabaret performance. But that's an assumption. We don't have record. Did the, the pianist play or was the showing silent? Key element in thinking about the functionary part of uh, film music history. So here I was thinking, and I can remember, I can literally remember the thought. I thought, oh, 1903, ragtime. I'll play ragtime. So I thought of a rag. I don't remember which one now, but I just played a rag. Uh, I like to think it was a rag written in 1903, but I can't say at this point. But I played a rag, and it worked. It was the opening credits, you know. And then the story started. And I can still remember thinking, oh, I got to (laughs) change, you know. So I played another rag. That worked. And then the story began literally. I mean, it was first it was the change to a, a title that explained what's happening. And then people started doing things. And I can still remember the thought, oh, 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 better, better do something. And the image that came to mind was cartoon music, Bugs Bunny especially. But it was just the notion of music with image. So I broke immediately. I can still remember doing it into cliche things. Um, you know, the sort of yum, dum, dum, dum for the villain kind of a thing, you know. And it worked. But the people laughed. And I didn't mean for them to laugh. I was just scrambling with something to do. But that association of cartoon music caused laughter, which imposed comedy onto the film. And that was a lesson, you know, really intriguing. So I broke away from cliché and broke into just coming up with something that I felt better, which meant composition, spontaneous composition. We call it improvisation today, and it truly was. I hadn't seen that film. So that is real improvisation. And I, and we got through it. And I began playing every week at that point. So you were playing piano for the film series there. Right. Whatever the film was. You've, you've said that really uh, to some degree your junior year or so was when you discovered a career just a, a couple of walls away from here. Yeah. At the IU Auditorium. Yeah. Tell us that story. Oh, it's a good one. Well, I do have to say that it was a couple of years into playing the piano each week for those films until it dawned on me to ask that if I saw the film in the afternoon before I played for it, I probably could do a better job. And then everything really changed when uh, the Museum of Art sent us a print of uh, Beau Geste with Ronald Coleman and a score with it an actual written score, first time I saw one, I was floored. And that's the key element that got me into the the thought of this as something beyond a novel thing to do with an ability that I had into something that perhaps is a professional activity that is, is vital, you know, something that still is alive. And that started the research. Well, the whole thing that happened next door, <laughs> you auditorium, what happened is they put the new organ in. New meaning they replaced the Roosevelt organ, which came from the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. And uh, Dr. William Barnes arranged for the donation, and it was a glorious instrument, a really historic, glorious instrument that by 1960s, late 60s, was completely out of fashion. Um, It was a symphonic organ. It was an organ that is exactly the sort of thing that was often used with silent film. In fact, that theater probably did use... It was silent film. I've been in the auditorium theater, which is restored. Uh, they had then then new when they built that theater. They had electric lights, so they probably had projection. But anyway, the whole thing is that they had this big historic organ that they 
throughout. They literally, students were hauling away parts. They put it in the, in the alley out on the side here when they tossed it, and they put in a new organ. And the new organ was at that then considered a major concert instrument. And I wanted to play it. I'm an organ student. You know, I want to play this thing. And, of course, there's no way I'm going to get to touch this brand-new, wonderful concert instrument. So I really started to kind of hive up an idea that would let me play that organ. So the whole generation was, I wanted to play it. And um, I had the notion, just wonderful notion, sitting around talking with my dormitory roommate, who I had a sympathetic one by that point, and we were chatting. And, and I said, you know, my dad has always told me stories about attending the Phantom of the Opera when he was, in 1925, he would have been six years old. And he, he could remember such details as the Phantom's cape was red, which was quite dramatic. Uh, t- it was a, a tinting process called the Hans Schlegel process where they actually tinted a single component of an image and they made it bright red. And, very, and my dad at age six could remember that. And then he can remember, of course, the famous unmasking of the Phantom as part of the story halfway through. And he was so taken with that moment that he left a wet deposit on his seat and he vividly remembered that and you know and he, and he even mentioned the organ he couldn't remember the organ which was still in the theater at that point so anyway that all was cooking and then i thought halloween halloween night let's show fan of the opera in a school auditorium this will be great you know and I went to the school craft shop and printed up by hand 400 tickets, you know. I made a deal with the, uh, my teacher and the American Guild of Organists chapter to sponsor it because I rapidly discovered the business instincts in me that a student was not allowed to use a university facility for private gain. Even though, of course, the private gain was to pay for my tuition. But anyway, they, so, so essentially they said, as long as we don't have to do anything, we'll split the proceeds with you. And they left it to me to have proceeds. So I connived up all these things. It was quite an experience, real instant learning about marketing. I started a campaign 30 days before the performance. I printed up little um, stickers that said the Phantom is coming and went around in the morning to all of the male toilet stalls in all of the dorms and stuck them on the insides of the lids. And so the people, when they lifted the lid, would see that. Um, I uh, took out an ad in the Daily Student at the bond, the smallest, cheapest ad, a little one-liner. It said, The Phantom's Coming, and just had that at the bottom of the front-page articles. Um, went around campus. I, I, I painted with a stencil on the sidewalks. Ooh, you know, it's vandalism now. And I, I put little striped posters. Just all That's all the campaign said for 30 days, The Phantom's Coming. So it was a real fever. This, what's this Phantoms coming, you know? And it was only explained the day before the show. A friend of mine was an IDS a writer, and he did a front-page article. <laughs> 4,000 people showed up. And it put me on NPR, all things considered. Uh, new idea for fundraising on campus. You don't have to do car washes and bake sales. Put on a silent movie with Dennis James. And that was where the career started. Right there, I started getting invitations from college and schools all, all through the state. And I started traveling on weekends. 
What a story. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's WFIU contributing to the whole thing. No kidding. Now, one question is, uh, what, was, what was the reaction of your teachers uh, to this particular activity? I think you were studying with, among others, Oswald Regatz. Yeah. Well, Ozzy had a line, whatever the golden goose wants, the golden goose gets. They always sponsored my shows for years, and um, I raised so much money, 50% they were getting with no effort on their part, and they ended up endowing, to this day, endowing the student chapter so that there's no dues to join, uh, buying music for the school library. We have a huge music collection of the latest and always all of the music scores for organists are come from the profits to this day. From uh, and then uh, funding for sponsorship of recitalists and all, you know, I love it. Forty years later, that money's still being spent. It was wisely invested, and I didn't. I I didn't. <laughs> I don't still have it, but the <laughs> but the school does. So um, Ozzy, as a result, um, I I started doing things like you know this organ's pretty good over here, but it needs some silent movie attributes. It needs sound effects. You know, Ozzy the Golden Goose, whatever he wants, you know. And so we used some of the money and um, added a glockenspiel, a xylophone, a celeste uh, to the organ to make it more of a theater organ. And uh, the rest of the faculty, it varied. Uh, I, I can look back. I mean, some of them have passed on, so they can't be around to defend themselves. But, but I got my um, positional statement about all of this. I can still remember an April Fool's concert at the IU Mac, and I got the organ faculty to provide sound effects for the great train robbery while I played an electronic organ for, as an act in the April Fool's concert. And I'll never forget Dr. Clyde Holloway playing a bird whistle for one of my silent movie screenings. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but they went along with the gag. Yeah. Now, you said that you were getting invitations from other places. Sure. Um, what kinds of opportunities were there in the 70s, and, and really have they evolved? Yeah, the opportunities. Somebody even just now, when I was walking in, talked about the idea of entrepreneurship, and somehow the root of the thing I wanted to say about that is that the very first thing I did when I arrived on campus was discover that we had a music store, which most schools that have a major music department, there's a music store to this day. But there was one right across the street from the music store, uh, school, and I was thrilled. A music store devoted. I don't have to order this music, you know. And I walked in, and I walked up to the guy in the counter, and I'll never forget asking to see the silent movie music department. It shows that I, I was living this and believed that I was going to be, or not even going to be, I am a silent movie musician. Even this is before the experience with the IU Auditorium and, the, and all the publicity, that I walked in here as a freshman and already was thinking about silent movie performing. And I'll never forget the expression on his face, <laughs> that silent movie music department in our music store, you know, like, are you crazy? And it was the very first time that I got an inkling that somebody didn't think what I thought, that this is a field, you know, I've never. Uh, I was so naive and so enth enthralled with all of this. So that the, the, the switch to entrepreneurship was simply a release of personality in me. And so when the NPR interview happened and I started getting these calls, 
they were inventing the notion. They heard about this and thought, whoa, well, we'll try it too. So it wasn't a case of I'm filling a need. I'm, by the nature of my existence, creating an interest and then filling the perceived need that I learned to do so well. And uh, so off I went, Ball State University, Muncie, they had in the city auditorium. I've told, I've been told it's still there, an SD organ, very historic one. It, this is a lovely anecdote that fits with the story. I went up there, and it was the beginning of learning that the whole existence as a touring organist in any sense, but especially for doing this sort of work, is making the best of whatever the instrument is at your disposal. And that's you have to be quite versatile because it's stunning, the variety of things that you get to play. And there was this SD organ put in there in the school, Ball State at, at, at Muncie, and... Uh, and it had these push buttons that when you, instead of tabs that move, which is kind of standard, it had buttons, and they weren't draw knobs like in a classic instrument. They were actually lit buttons, and you would push it, and it would be on, and it would light up and then stay lit until you pushed it again. And when you pushed it, the light would go off. The big problem is the ones where the lights were burned out. <laughs> so if you pushed it, there was no way to know <laughs> until you heard that it was there, and then you, you know... But the most high thing to tell about that is I discovered rapidly that if I set the preset buttons where you can choose combinations ahead of time, like full organ, you put a lot of them down, you could spell words on the matrix. And I discovered that in history, this was a common thing that they did to new organists at the Capitol Theater on Broadway in New York City, is they would put outrageous four-letter words in the preset combinations, changing them for the new organist when he was on staff, and he'd hit piston three, and up would come the word that started with F, and everyone in the theater could see it. (laughs) And the organist would all go, yes! (laughs) So anyway, I started traveling around because I was invited, and whatever the instrument was, I played in in, uh, churches, I played in in, uh, a, a Masonic auditorium, I played in some theaters. I remember becoming quite frequently playing at the at the uh, old Rivoli Theater on the east side of town in Indianapolis. I started commuting up there, met Dessa Bird. Dessa Bird was still alive, and she was the number one silent movie player in Indianapolis. And I got to know her well. And so she told me a lot of stories, gave me some of the music. And, and, um, and here on campus, I found out that Hoagie Carmichael was the organist at the Princess Theater and found that the Princess Theater organ was across the street in WFIU in Studio 5. Yeah, and uh, so it was just this incredible intensity of of um, desire to fulfill what we now call a nerd passion. Uh, I was a geek, and off I went. So you're being invited to different places at this point. You're, you're uh, also managing to stay in school. Yeah. And to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to continue with that. Uh, were there were things evolving at this point? Were things were you now running into more sophisticated audiences? Were you running into uh, better prints? Were you running into? Uh, you'd mentioned the first score you saw was the score to Bo Jest, and what was that score like? All of those things were evolving, but they were evolving by chance and only incorporation because things got better. And my sense of what better is, is what prevailed. I did determine very quickly something that holds to this day, 
is that many of the decisions of quality are in the hands of the person doing something and that the audience perception of quality is one of conviction and um, it becomes trust of the presenter as to what quality really means. So that when I took on a notion that, oh, this is better than what I'm doing for film, that I should do what other people have written before, actually for me... It was a case of, you know, it's a lot easier to read this music because it tells me everything. It tells me when to start. It tells me when to stop. It tells me where in the music I should be when something happens on the screen. And those are major decisions for a musician working with film. So for me, it was a no-brainer of preparation. It's much, much, much easier to read something that somebody's made all those choices. And then as I worked with the material, I started learning rapidly what people really wanted with these films because these were studio scores that were prepared in in uh, in keeping with the actual release of the movie so that the filmmakers themselves knew this music and then when i started meeting the movie stars and learning that there was very careful interplay between the filmmakers and the musicians and on and on i then i developed that sensitivity to the notion of what is appropriate to go with historic image and uh but the idea of um expansion it was very much incremental function that backwards i can say when something happened but it wasn't a um a, a very studied pursuit it, it, a lot of it is series of accidents that we can later on say was a progression of knowledge so uh, i grew one by one things like film image i remember the moment when i got sensitive to the quality of image and that is and I, it, it, I, I seem to remember about 1972 is the number. And I was at the, we were at the um, the, the theater in, in Indianapolis. I mentioned the, um, I suddenly forgot it, but it was on the side of Indianapolis. And, and they booked the brand new restored print of The Black Pirate, which was the second full-length uh, issued Technicolor, full Technicolor movie. There was there were there was one just before it, and then there was an experiment in twenty three. But but the, essentially, Black Pirates, the famous one, and it was intentionally made full color and Fairbanks, Doug Fairbanks, and all. And they had just at that point found the original negatives. They were turned up in London and um, in the Technicolor Company archives, and they ran off the print and they made it so we could show it. And well, I burst into tears in the very first scene because you could see the detail of the wood in the pirate ship. Now, I started working with 8-millimeter prints, which is, you know, home movie gauge. And then here on campus, I worked with 16-millimeter, which was sort of the academic institutional distribution medium for film. And I never even saw 35-millimeter, which is what you saw in theaters in the day for silent film. I never even saw one. So here they're showing this 35-millimeter color preserved, taken from the original negative print, and I burst into tears, literally burst into tears. It's the actual aesthetic impact of something that you didn't even imagine existed, that it could look like a new film. And that changed. That I mean, there are these moments where I say everything changed, and that's one of them, the, uh, the sensitivity to image, to see that. Unbelievable. Now, that was a knockout moment. Yeah, uh, total. Now, I'm assuming there have been ups and downs in terms of image quality Constant. Uh, over the years. Uh, a number of the films that, that you've accompanied at one time or another have actually changed during the time that you've been accompanying them. 
Yeah, they burn. <laughs> Not really. People don't know how to project them, and they, they misset the projector and don't deal with the, with the blades, the projection blades and things, and they run the film a little too slow, and, and you see it. I remember what happened here at the auditorium. We used to have 35-millimeter projectors over there, and uh, as I re- maybe I'm wrong about 35. I remember 16. Yeah, we had 16, high-quality 16. And, um, and one time, we're watching the movie, and the, and the image started to melt. And it was not an effect, obviously. <laughs> it just started to melt. And I thought, I've never seen liquid before. And then, boom, it caught. It burst into fire. Well, <laughs> it was that exciting. So, yeah, all sorts of changes to that image. That print changed. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. The historical developments, in some cases, additional film has been found. Oh, in some yeah. cases, earlier print. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And I wondered if you'd been in on some of that. Oh, gosh. Well, I've been a victim of some of it and, and in on it. The, the one, the one to tell that's so much fun. Um, the movie was, um, yeah, it was The King of Kings, uh, Story of Christ, you know, Cecil B. DeMille. And um, so they asked me to play this film at the um, very prestigious now, uh, it was like the second time, uh, the Pordenone, Italy, Pordenone Silent Movie Festival. And uh, they asked me to come over and play this. And they even got an organ, which is like unheard of in Europe. Organ was rare in Europe. And uh, so they got an electric organ, brought it into this little theater. And, and they said, yeah, King of Kings, you know. Well, I had at that point gotten the experience that you really ought to take a look at the print, at least some of it, that they're going to show of a movie. Because there are things that are different, you know. Well, they'd restored the movie just restored it. Eastman House had restored it. And they added 42 minutes of footage. 42 minutes. And uh, I had been playing what was the standard print in a 16-millimeter fashion. And that's what my score was for. And I, we had enough time to show me the first reel, you know, 20 minutes or so, before I had to play. They put that babe up there, and I was dumbfounded. Not in the restoration, not only did they add footage, but they changed the order of everything. <laughs> so my score made no sense the way it was sitting, you know. And then I can still remember, oh, Pontius Pilate has a wife. Is she going to stay around? Yeah, yep, yep, she's a character. Okay, she needs a theme. All right, is she happy? Is she sad? Is something happening that she's going to be involved in? You know, I'm just watching Pontius Pilate's wife trying to figure out how to build it into my score, you know, on the fly, which is oh, so typical. And, yeah, she stayed through the whole movie. She'd been cut out of the other prints. So, um, yeah, these prints vary. It's a big issue. Now, uh, contributing? Yes, I've contributed. I'm very proud to say that um, Metropolis, the restoration of Metropolis, a key part is directly my, my function. It's a dramatic story. In 1974... Maybe 76. I think it was 76. I, um, at that point, the Museum of Modern Art was distributing a 16-millimeter uh, release version of what was then the known version of Metropolis. 
And that's what I prepared a score to with the then very avant-garde electronic synthesis. And my wife at the time um, played uh, synthesizer and I played organ. And we toured the world with a score that I'd come up with to go with this print. And we went around. Well, we got to Australia. And here we are at the Dendy Theater in Melbourne, Australia. And they come to me the morning of the show. And they said, we have our own print. Would you mind if we show our own print? I said, sure. Could I see the print? Even then, I was a little sensitive to the notion, gee, there might be something different. you know. So they put this thing up. And it opened with a foot race in a stadium with a guy in a gym outfit, you know? Well, I'd read a bit about the history of the film and knew that that scene was lost. And I'm seeing it. Now, this is every book I've read about this film talks about what, what was the stadium scene like. There's a still image, but, you know, footage is gone. And I'm watching it, you know? <laughs> And then this character appears named Hell, H-E-L-L, which in German means bright. She's, her name's, or she's, it's a tribute to this character whose first name was Hell, and she's passed away, and there's a statue, and it said Hell, and that's why she wasn't in the American and English-speaking versions of the film. She'd been cut away because of her name. And here I'm seeing her, and everyone's wondering about that. You know? And then there's this big fight scientist and and I'm watching it and I'm thinking I'm starting to shiver and this is the beginning of that film historian part really functioning I'm seeing an original print in color you know I'm here I am and I sat and made notes while we're watching this thing and and adjusted the score and did it and started talking about it when I came home you know mentioning it and here in campus mentioning it and I got a call <laughs> from the guy restoring the film, Anopotilus, in Munich. And he said, where did you, where did you see this print? What, what, where did you, you saw the stadium scene? I said, yeah. And I told him. And, well, it turned out that there was X, I can't remember the exact number. It's very small, 12 prints, 9 prints, something. In the first release of Metropolis, Fritz Long sent them out. And one of them went to Australia. And that one never came back. And that's the print. It fell into the hands of a collector, and it was nitrate, and you know, and that's what formed the basis of the res- restoration at that period, uh, the major restoration. What we have now is the addition of some lost footage that they found in uh, in South America. But but this was the restoration because they had a full print, an actual first cut nitrate Fritz Long distributed print, and that was the basis. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, I contributed a bit. In film history, South America and Germany. Oh, it's it's worldwide. These things are worldwide. Yeah. Now, at the same time that there have been differences in prints, uh, you mentioned that uh, when you discovered that there actually had been uh, commissioned and fully worked out scores for the various pieces, uh, were there sometimes conflicts there? Conflicts in the sense of... In, in the sense of uh, more than one yeah. musical approach to something. Yeah, there's one easy one to tell that just says it. In the day, 1924, Douglas Fairbanks 
had unlimited capacity to do anything he wanted. He made so much money. He was the star of the day. And he was very conscientious about quality and thinking about advancements and traveling the world. I mean, he went off to Russia and literally was the American who discovered Eisenstein and, and created the, influ- the beginning of the Russian influence and on a big level into Hollywood. And he was a, a major guy. I mean, he's one of the ones that I'd lo- love to have met. And um, so anyway, Fairbanks had the opportunity, best of the best. Let's commission a new score, new composition a major composer. He chose a young composer named Mortimer Wilson, who was a student of Max Rager, a European um, composer and teacher. And um, and Mortimer Wilson was a young, what we would have called a young Turk, you know, he was a young, um, kind of a Philip Glass character, major impact, and living in New York and doing opera and, you know. And Fairbanks bought him to do a score for Thief of Baghdad. And uh, Wilson took it on, big project, really major, full Huge orchestra. And um, he, uh, there is a program from the opening night with a complete description of the elements of the score with the themes and the assignment and explaining the reason and how the themes work. And I mean, it's a real fully done-up work at the highest level of thinking in 1924. And Fairbanks hated it. He hated it. It was just didn't match his movie. It was wrong as far as he as a the person who conceived of the film, you see, they just turned these things over to the musicians and the industry average at that point was five days before the premiere and the musician got it to put a score to it. This one had more time and he really did create a through composed work. Wonderful. It really is wonderful. Fairbanks didn't like it, junked it, would not allow it to be played again and commissioned what he thought of, which is what he thought of when he was making the film uh, the movie set in, quote, Arabia. And so he thought of Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. And he created a compiled score based on Scheherazade and then other of that sort of romantic, uh, sort of what we call music of the other. And that's what was played. <laughs> So there's two historical scores. There's a conflict. Now, I know that you've actually played that at the both of auditorium. Them. Which I've one? Done, no, I've done both scores. And um, I've, uh, the one I did here uh, was an organ modification of the compilation score. Ah. Yeah, George Bradford, I think, was the compiler. Scheherazade. Oh, Scheherazade was, yeah, of course. <laughs> it was great. Works. You've mentioned already uh, that you ran into some challenges with an instrument where you couldn't tell whether the light was yeah. on or not. But I wondered if there have been a, some other challenging instruments. Oh, continually. I mean, even this year. They, um, the word got around in Austria. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. Um, at the Mozarteum, which if you're in the music school, mentioning that causes you to go to a flutter. The Mozarteum, for instance, issues the uh, the formal edition of the complete works of Mozart. And and the Mozarteum Concert Hall, the Grossa Sala, is, you know, putatively the highest prestige place for us to play as musicians. So they called, the, the programming director called me last year. And, oh, uh, yes, it's from the Mozarteum. And, and instantly my mind thought, I'm going to be asked to play my glass harmonica 
which was one of Wolfgang Mozart's favorite instruments and hasn't been heard in a fully professional capacity for 200 years. And I do that, and I thought, and I've been playing around the world and perhaps the Mozarteum, you know, here we go, this is the call, I'm going to go and play Mozart at the Mozarteum, and I'm all, my mind's calculating, and, and I'm, it was on a message machine. And, uh, and I'm listening, and he says, yes, this is Dr. Pauly, and uh, we'd like you to invite you to play, and we'd like, we have a new organ, and we'd like you to play Phantom of the Opera. It would be fantastic to hear Phantom of the Opera to open our new organ. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, of all the things I do to be invited at the Mozarteum to play. And it's an instrument that has nothing to do with American theatrical thinking. Nothing. Nothing. It's an instrument that if anyone's listening that knows anything about organ, there are no pistons. Pistons are the things that you can set and you can have like a brass chorus on a piston, and then you can just push it, and you've got a brass chorus. And you can put the clarinet here and the violin there and the trumpets here, and you can create a, a neutral setting and then a larger neutral setting, and you can have a full, full marching band with drums. And you just you push your buttons, and there they are. This organ has no buttons. Figuring out even how to play it was the challenge, let alone do this job with a film. It was amazing. Came up with a way. And and they'd keep asking me to explain it. And I say, ah, no, I'll just come back and do it. But I'm not going to tell you how I do this. And they will the other organists come and stare at me when I'm playing to figure out how I'm doing it. It's I figured out a trick. But anyway, it's still today. Uh, you just don't know. And you have to it's a mental exercise to stay calm. That's how I tell people to get rid of stage fright, is you learn how to stay calm. Whatever is the tool at your disposal, that's what you'll play. And it, it, it oh, I could tell stories. <laughs> but that's a recent one. That's just this year. No kidding. Now, asking about uh, challenging instruments, then I have to ask, what's the hardest film you've had to accompany? The most demanding it's an interesting question because the premise of the field that I've adapted, adopted, and adapted, is uh, the whole premise is that the job of the musician is to do the job, whatever it takes. So hard is a calculation based on the resources and the expectations. The expectations of the people commissioning you to do something, and then the resources you have at your disposal. Some films are easy. The original score survives, even though it's a complex task, it's made easier. The hardest thing to do is to not know the expectation of the person from whom you've accepted the assignment, not knowing the resources that you're going to end up because many times what is represented to be what you're asked to play does not end up being what you end up playing. You know, often they say, I'm going to play the organ. <laughs> I was asked to play. <laughs> I was asked to play in Seoul, Korea for the first film festival in Seoul, Korea. And they heard me play in San Francisco and they wanted the the student prince of old Heidelberg, and yes, we want you to do this in Seoul, Korea. And I said, yes, I'm there, I'm there. Now, I know there's not a 
Oregon and Seoul, Korea, or the whole country. There's, there's no organs. So it's going to be a real interesting challenge to deal with the fact that they're saying, yes, and we have theater organ for you. Yes, we will have theater organ for you. And, and I know that they don't know what they're talking about. And yet I'm having to prepare for this grand performance. And we got to the day before getting on the plane. And they said, oh, Mr. James, we have no organ in all of Korea. Uh, will you play piano? <laughs> and I was all ready for that. So I said, well, that'll be fine. And I, oh, a gorgeous Steinway. But, uh, but the, but the, so the worst, the hardest thing is when you, you don't know the print that you're going to see. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. You don't know the instrument you're going to play. <laughs> and you don't know what music they're expecting. Many times people hire me and just presume that they're also commissioning me to do a through-composed, original-by-me music for a world premiere. But they don't mention that. And I am by nature a historian and do everything I can to find the music that was with the film. And for me, the greatest enterprise is to discover the actual score that was written for the movie and played at the opening night. That's the goal. And here they think... And I don't know that that's what's on their mind. And I get the press when I arrive in town, and it's the world premiere of my new score. And it's like, whoa! <laughs> you know. So those are the factors that I would weigh. And I can't answer the hardest because each one of those factors can contribute to easily that it's the hardest thing I ever did when I don't have the elements that in place. Somehow I'm, I'm less than surprised that your minor was business. <laughs> well... Yeah, yeah, the business was very, very strong. We had a very fine business school here, and I got fell in with some of the faculty, and they really explained to me the nature of, uh, you know, soul, soul enterprise and entrepreneur, and yeah, it was, it was very wonderful. Now, you mentioned mm. that one of the pleasures for you is, is digging up uh, the original school. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are there, are there some stories about uh, finding those? Oh, yeah, I found... I found the Ten Commandments. Uh, I, I'm an inveterate antique mall and antique stores and estate sales. I love when you walk in and they say, we have pallets of music in the garage that he was somebody collected sheet music. Would you like to see it? Oh, yes, would I like to see it? And um, many, many, many churches, high schools, um, school uh, uh, community orchestras, the core of their music library came, or the music library came from the local cinema, from the silent era when it closed down, and they donated the music to the local whatever. And many times in there are full scores that were just left behind. You know, music was disposable. It was printed, and it's like they thought of music in the silent era. The musicians thought of music in the silent era, print it the way we think of magazines. Do we keep our copy of Time magazine after we've read it? Do we even give it to somebody else? No, no, it's disposable. It's a functionary way of delivering, and we toss it. That's what silent movie music was. And there were people that didn't toss it. And that's, oh, that's where I go. And so, yeah, I love to go. I, everywhere I go, I ask to see music collections in town. And I always ask to see the ones that aren't cataloged, you know, that they don't use. I want to see the stuff that's over in the box in the corner. And I found uh, harmonica music from the 18th century that way, going to archives in Europe and asking to see the music that isn't cataloged. 
And the reason it's not cataloged because they don't know what an harmonica is. So they can't catalog it. So they just put it in miscellaneous works. And I found, you know, two CP Bach sonatas for glass harmonica. Nobody knew it. So that's part of the joy of it is this finding these things. You mentioned the glass harmonica a little earlier. It's that wonderfully eerie sounding instrument that uh, Donizetti uses so masterfully in the mad scene from Luci de Lamamore. And it was also a, a parlor favorite of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Well, he invented it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your uh, tell us a little bit about what the glass harmonica you play is and then a little bit about some of these pieces. Okay. So first nomenclature, the original spelling and then the pronunciation is armonica. It's uh, Franklin himself sent a letter to Father Beccaria in Italy and said that he had named his new invention the armonica in honor of the Italian language. And the Italian language for harmony is armonia without an H at the front. And so he called it the armonica. And um, so the word harmonica is um, what which we think of as a mouth organ. People think I play a glass mouth organ. Well, literally, many people think I wear this thing around my neck, you know. Um, so the instrument consists of glass bowls, concentric uh, assemblage mounted on a horizontal shaft. So the bowls are on their sides, and uh, it's as though you're playing wine glasses and you wet your fingers and rub the rim. And these bowls are mounted sideways so that they're cupped together in, a, in like a kind of a cone, and just the rims are showing, and then you wet the rims, and then you can press your fingers down. And since they're all next to each other, you can play it like a keyboard. extremely popular instrument. I found one factory in northern France that made 5,000 of them in the 18th century. One factory, and they were produced all over Europe. Uh, no manufacturer here in the United States that we're aware of. Um, ben Franklin invented it, 1762. Um, it was such an improvement on the then popular musical glasses, glasses mounted on a table individually and rubbing them. It was such an improvement, it was, it's now classified as a new invention, so it's literally the first American musical instrument, and it was quite the fashion. Um, every famous and not-so-famous 18th century composer and early 19th, except Haydn, wrote for it. No Haydn. Kills me. I talked to, I, what was it, Peter Hall on the faculty here, Haydn's specialist, and he said, nope, 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 no glass. Well, but I do have, I do have record that he attended a concert uh, by the then virtuoso of the day, Mariana Kerkessner, blind player, uh, and she played Haydn in transcription, a minuet, and he approved of her rendition. So we have an approved by Haydn piece that I can include. In. So um, it was a major instrument of its day. When I took it up, there were essentially eight pieces that people thought about. There's now five, over 500. Do you incorporate it in any of your film scores? You know, I want to. I'm extremely sensitive to the nature of the texture of sound with film. And I'm entranced with the notion of multiple textures. I'm, by uh, professional choice and volition, um, historians, so that if I found a score where they used an harmonica, you can well imagine I'm there. But I have, I do these things, and so 
the closest I've come is almost got a commission to do Colleen Moore's A Kiss for Cinderella and Cinderella and the Glass Slipper. But everything fell apart. Let's take it one step. <laughs> oh, okay. I know you also play the theremin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you worked on that yet? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the most successful things I ever did. 91. Oh, so the theremin. Theremin's the first essentially marketed electronic instrument. It uh, 1919 invention uh, produced in America for mask production in 1929 by a unique consortium of RCA, General Electric, and Westinghouse brought together, and they pooled their resources and made an instrument that cost the same as a Model A Ford, $200. And the vision at the time and the publicity was uh, a theremin in every home, like a chicken in every pot, a theremin in every home. And the reason they thought that would work is because the theremin I love the promotion. Anyone can play a theremin. It's, um, it's an instrument that needs no musical training whatsoever. And, um, you know, but I love the fact that if you play, they said if, if you can whistle, you can play the theremin. But they leave out the part if you whistle well, you'll play the theremin well. But if you don't play well, then it's not going to be very good theremin playing either. So anyway, it's an instrument you play without touching. It's monophonic. In the modern conception, it comes from Hollywood movies. It sounds like whistles, kind of <laughs> kind of a sound. But its original design was a sort of an electronic cello, and it was a low tone in sort of a singing range. And um, yes, the instrument's from the 20s. And um, I did contact the inventor through a third party who was still living in 1991, Leon Theremin. And he was living in Moscow and found in retirement. And they made a documentary. And I had the filmmaker ask him if it was ever used with a silent film. And he said, no, no, never used with a silent film. Okay, so now I get to invent history. That's my choice. So I had this idea, project idea. I'm at lunch, Walker Center for the Contemporary Arts, Minneapolis. And I'm with the then director of the museum, and I'm with Anopotilus, head of the Munich Film Museum. And we're sitting there, and I'm telling them about the attributes of this new instrument I've begun playing new to me, the theremin. And gosh, wouldn't it be fun to put it with a film because it was so famous with horror movies. And when the ghosts came from the sky, the aliens landing, you'd hear, you know, and the Lost Weekend and Ray Milland and Spellbound. And gosh, wouldn't it be great to put it with a silent movie? And Anno says, Dennis, look at Alita, Queen of Mars. Even the title says it, Alita, Queen of Mars. Big production, 1924, Protasinov, Soviet film, display of the newly revived Soviet filmmaking or Russian film industry as emergent in the Soviet system, celebrated as an interface with the West. Huge film. Major people involved, especially designers, constructivist designers, Alexandra Extra. Extra, extra, I forgot. Um, did the, the costumes. Malevich did some of the sets. I mean, it's a big deal. And there was a print in America in Berkeley, and I flew to Berkeley and put the thing up on the moviola. And the, every image I saw, I, I heard texture-wise, I heard the score. And even started to hear conceptually the score, but I heard texture. I could hear the theremin. Boom, 1991. So instantly... Um, through some connections, uh, the uh, Ghost Filmophone, which is the archive in Moscow, sent me a print. It arrived. Customs called me. And they said, we've got this print of this movie here in San Francisco. Um, and you've got to come down and pick it up. And I said, well, you know, is there any money? No, no, it's prepaid. It's 
you know, sent to you from Moscow. And so I come down, and it's a 35-millimeter print. They just heard that I'm doing this project and gave me a print. Stunning. And then I got some funding from Minneapolis, and and I put together a – I got score material from the, the Soviet Cinematheque, the, the Moscow Cinematheque, the, um, the Eisenstein Institute uh, gave me – an entire encyclopedia of Soviet film music published, approved by the Soviet Film Music Committee. And um, so I could put a score together with original material and uh, created it and ran off all over the world, played it at the Louvre, played it down in Rome, the Cinematheque there, and all over the world. It was a huge success. So there is one where I did that, and, and it's a piece of historic recreationism. Recre- it's done with full historic principles, but it didn't happen. It, it was based on historical thought. I still play the film, still do it. So despite the fact that Haydn didn't write yeah. for the Glass Harmonica and uh, there was no f- silent film for the theremin, but there have been lots for piano and organ, Dennis James, our guest, <laughs> continues on. Into the Sunset, uh, a career that's lasted more than 40 years, the first and only Hollywood International Ambassador of Silent Film, and our guest, part of the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Lecture Series. I'm George Walker for WFIU Arts. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2011. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.